was a continuous thought that Paul had. <clears throat> this rejoicing, whether the gospel was going forward uh, in, uh, in circumstances of pretense. Remember, there were people that were preaching uh, to, to spite Paul, to lord it over him. And what did he say? doesn't matter. If they're preaching Jesus, if they're preaching the gospel, then let it go. So that Jesus' name would increase. He says, I'll rejoice. Joy. If we could package it up and sell it, we'd probably all buy it. Like this thing that they'd offer in a vending machine or a convenience store, an essential oil diffuser. But joy is tricky. It's not enough to extol joy as a virtue. It's actually, we actually have to get to the bottom of what our, our source of joy is, what our basis of joy is. Everyone is seeking joy. Everyone is seeking relief and contentment and happiness and delight. And whatever that thing is that fuels the joy in our life, whatever that thing is that fuels contentment and delight in our life, that thing becomes the thing that motivates us. So I want to consider when Paul is laying himself out here as a case study on joy and how he rejoices. And I got to be honest with you guys. There are some difficulties in wading into this passage, and we'll see them in just a minute. Um, but as much as you pray that God would speak to you today, also pray, if you would, that God would help me um, navigate with clarity um, some, of the, some of the difficulties that the application of this passage can present. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read uh, kind of the uh, beginning in verse, the second half of 18, on through 26. Stand if you would. Let's hear God's word. Here Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that would be far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts 
be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Do a mighty work this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Okay. We need to see in, in, in this entire text what is fueling Paul's desire. So I want to say a, uh, a prefatory thing, and I'm going to get into Paul's dilemma, Paul's two choices, right? Is it better for him to stay or is it better for him to go? So I want to wrestle through those two things, um, but I want to say a few preparatory things um, to start with. At first reading, it might be easy to think that Paul is just, uh, his great confidence is that God's got my back, right? In that um, he's really special in God's eyes and that God is thus going to get him out of this temporal jam. And this is dangerous. Um, I'm not saying it's dangerous to believe that God always has and always will advocate for us and for our best in and through Jesus. What I mean to say is that it's dangerous to think that God's advocacy for us means that immediate relief in our circumstances is what he's going to provide. Okay? When you begin to equate God's advocacy of you with ease in your life, you're setting yourself up for huge failure. To say that God has your bad situation under control doesn't mean that your bad situation is going to go away. Your bad situation may actually get worse. That is not an evidence of God's abdication of his control in your circumstances. No, here's what Paul means. What Paul means here is that this will turn out for my deliverance. It means that in the end, no matter what happens to him, the ransom that Christ has paid and the resurrection that Jesus has achieved thus belongs to Paul. And though he may fall under the tyranny of the sword and chains of Rome, his ultimate enslavement was to sin the flesh and the devil, not the chap he's locked up to 24 hours a day. His ultimate enslavement was to sin the flesh and the devil. His ultimate deliverance secured by Christ frees him from sin's power, condemnation under God's wrath, and the ultimate death promised in Eden and carried out on that last day, it saves him from all of that. He's freed from that so that he may experience, um, so that even though Paul may experience the ugly of this world, he will be delivered by the former and the framer of this world in such a way that no one would ever doubt for a single moment whether or not God had this thing under control. The salvation that Paul is banking on, as we're going to see in verse 20, is that he will not be ashamed, right? So when he's looking for God's saving grace, right? Not salvation as in what Jesus did on the cross, but salvation in God's present Saving grace, what Paul is banking on is when the chips are down and when it's on the line, Paul is not going to shrink back from declaring his trust and his faith in Jesus. And he'll have full courage to declare before the tribunal of Caesar the glory and the grace and the love of the one true rightful king and Lord Jesus. So he's praying 
that whatever happens, that Christ would be shown great in Paul's fleshly, earthly body. He's looking for the abiding grace of Jesus, not to shrink from difficult circumstances, but through the circumstances that God has brought to boldly proclaim the glory of Christ. So I know I've used this quote by Nancy Guthrie before, but I'll say it again. She says, if your church prays for um, suffering to be removed rather than redeemed, then your church, your place, your people are not safe for sad people. If you're just praying that the way God would use adversity, suffering, difficult providence, whatever you want to throw in as your descriptor there, if you want to say, if you want to pray that God removes it, that's cool. But if you're only praying for suffering's removal rather than praying for its ultimate redemption, then your church is not a safe place for sad people. Because otherwise, what happens is that suffering is just bad stuff. And unless God removes it, he can't do any good stuff through it. Make sense? Yeah? So is Paul here praying for his uh, sufferings removal? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain? Is Paul suicidal? Serious question. Serious question. What about for those of you that haven't necessarily plotted the where, the when, the how, and the why of your own death, but maybe, just maybe, you woke up and just thought to yourself, I wouldn't mind it if the next day I just didn't wake up. Is that what Paul's going through here? This is the stuff that we have to wrestle with because Paul is using his own life as a case example of how to wrestle through these very real things. Because praying for suffering's redemption is asking for God's kingdom purposes to be exalted, even if it's at our momentary expense. Does Paul live? Christ gets the glory. Does Paul die? Christ gets the glory. But he really has to wrestle with this, doesn't he? Because here we are. We're at one of these. Um, we're at one of these coffee mug passages. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul saw it, right? We see it too. The best for him is to be with Jesus. Paul's Desire in anything that happens is the magnification and the exaltation of Jesus. Um, so there's some interesting factors that go into Paul's thinking, which he pastorally lets the Philippian church view. 
right? He's actually letting them into his thought process. I remember when I was in college, I was on a uh, summer, uh, summer, uh, summer training mission um, with a college ministry, and the guy that was discipling me that summer, um, in order to teach me how to pray, uh, he didn't actually open up a book and start lecturing or uh, going into the principles of a well-constructed prayer. He just invited me to, to sit with him as he prayed out loud. And he didn't filter himself. He prayed through everything that was going on in his life. And he showed me by example what his prayer life looked like. Paul is showing the Philippian church here what this process is of wrestling through these very real things he's wrestling with. Here's one of the interesting things that I saw in this text. The first interesting thing is that Paul seems to assume that he has the authority to decide whether or not he's going to be executed or released, right? Look at verse 22. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Um, This passage confronts this idea for Paul. Was his goal just to escape life? For you and I, is our goal just to escape life? Well, of course, listen, of course it is on one level, right? If anyone particularly enjoys poverty, injustice, rampant depravity, sickness, sorrow, pain, and death, first of all, I don't understand you. And secondly, see the first point. To read this passage then as Paul stating a desire to escape, I think misses the heart of the apostle. He's not advocating for suicide here. Years earlier, when Philippi's jailer was about to kill himself, Paul stopped him and reminded him in Acts chapter 16 that we're all here with you. Paul would not have taken into his own hands the power of life and death. That is God's alone. So why does Paul make an audacious claim like this? Why would he say that which I shall choose I cannot tell if he's not advocating taking his own life? I think it's because Paul knows and believes fully that it is Christ who is in ultimate command and control of his life. Paul's plans are always subject to the sovereign hand of God and the revisions and realignments that God may bring into his life. Paul's choice, his his dilemma that he's facing here in prayer is um, which legal outcome should he request of God? Because, you know, here's the crazy thing about Paul, right? Paul, the one who believes in the absolute sovereignty of God and the one and that the immutable um, plans of God cannot be changed or, or adjusted, yet the weird thing here is Paul believes that God hears our prayers and the specific requests of our prayers and that bringing our requests matters to God and that, wait a minute, God might actually change and relent and hear our prayers and do something different. Hmm. That's another sermon for another day, right? Amen, Presbyterians? We live in this tension 
where God is both sovereign and in control of all things. Nothing surprises him. Nothing thwarts him. And yet in a very real sense, God does hear, does use, and does answer the prayers of his people. Oh, oh now, like I always say, if your theological system doesn't look like it was wrapped by a three-year-old, you got the wrong theological system. If it's got Macy's corners on it, you've omitted some parts of the Bible. Let's keep going. Um, Here's the second surprising thing, at least to me. Paul is wrestling two desirable outcomes. Ooh. I thought to be absent from the body was to be present from the Lord. I thought we were just in heaven's waiting room. I thought we were just supposed to endure this life and get to the good life that's to come. What do you mean? He's wrestling through two desirable outcomes. He said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. There's only one desirable outcome in there, right? No. Living is desirable. Dying is also desirable. Our lives were designed to be animated. Animated by joy, right? Jesus said, I have come that they may have a life and have it what? Have it abundantly. Have it to the full. Let me ask you about the last time you were in a waiting room and enjoyed it. If you think this place is designed to be heaven's waiting room, you've missed the heart of God. I think a lot of us could identify with this thing. I was reading in um, one of Dan Allender's books. Dan is a, a counselor that I deeply respect. I was reading one of Dan's books. Let me read this quickly. Um, our lives are not meant to be, as Allender puts it, an endless repetition and a good but routine existence. Allender says, sometimes we feel like we're just surviving, merely getting through one day to the next, working, raising kids, cleaning house, cutting lawns. The exhaustion of this life is heard in the phrase, been there, done that. He goes on to say this. He says, pointless repetition creates a reasoned and well-manicured suburbia, but it does not lend itself well to a life that stretches out for eternity. We are to yearn for God, to pant for his coming. We are to shape our present in light of the eternity we anticipate. By merely surviving, we live for a now that is not permeated by the leaven of heaven. But by reaching out to eternity is to live with an unquenchable hope, refusing to resign to being as we are in the world as it is. We look at our life as it is now. I think some of us feel this very deeply. Heaven sees amazing. Here seems ambiguous at best and adversarial at worst. But for Paul, for the redeemed in Christ, we are to see the delight of the king and the kingdom in the world to come and working in the world that is both glorious and, and, and made for our continual inhabitation. 
for Paul, both his life and his death have the same hope, that he is in Christ. And because of that, union in Christ, no matter the result of his legal appeal, they are competing goods. Does Caesar find him guilty and execute him? He goes to be with Jesus. Does Caesar acquit him and and send him loose? He still has Jesus. But if Paul were to be really, really honest, there is a personal good that comes from his death. Death is not a gain because of the intolerability of his circumstances. There there are some, and I know there are some in this room because I'm here, so there's at least one, who have struggled with this life and have entertained the desire of a hasty departure from it. So to say that I would rather die and be with Jesus is to still reveal a heart that's set on itself. Because in this life, we have Christ. We don't get more Christ when we die as if to say that our being filled with the Spirit now is somehow second class. True, we get the redemption of our bodies. We get the removal of our sin sin nature. We no longer wrestle with the already and the not yet. But to say that we could just go and be with Jesus can potentially reveal that we just long for relief, not redemption. Do you understand this? When we want what Jesus can give us, relief, rather than what Jesus wants for us, redemption, union with him, um, sufferings, uh, union with him and his sufferings, a cross before a crown, it reveals that we want Jesus for what he can give us, not for what he, not for who he is. When you love someone for what they do for you, is that really love? Or is that just treating them like a utility? What makes death a gain for Paul is not that earthly misery that it leaves behind, but rather the heavenly delight which is ushered in. If Paul's um, personal desire um, that's animating his choice between life and death, he would gladly choose the martyrdom that would swiftly bring him to Jesus' feet. Here's the thing that this text forces us to ask. And again, I want to ask this delicately. What this, text, what this text forces us to ask is not which would you choose, life or death, but why would you choose life or why would you choose death? Do you understand? Give me one of these. A few of those. What your reasons are can tell you much. Whether you choose life to death or death to life is a conversation worth having. And here's the thing, guys. This is advanced Christianity. This is Christianity 401. This is not the 101 section of Christianity. This is wrestling with really significant things. This isn't something you go like, oh, wow, I'm going to put this in place. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and start a new, new, uh, new, new time in my life. This isn't that, exactly. 
This is, this is the type of thing that takes some concerted heart work with prayer, fasting, spiritual direction, because it forces us to define or redefine at our core what our definition of life is, right? For some of us, life's definition is that we would have fun. If you take away the fun, you take away the meaning of life. When, when you make your um, blank the meaning of your life, when it goes well, it goes to your head. When it goes poorly, it goes to your heart. Let me use an example. Take work, for instance. If you make your work the meaning, the meaning of your life, when work goes well, it goes to your head. You're floating. You're elated. You feel successful, invincible, powerful. When it goes poorly, it drops straight to your heart. You feel like a nothing, a nobody, a failure. If it's your kids... When your kids are doing great, you float, you soar, you are delighted. You are the reason that Parent Magazine is still in business. When your kids are doing bad, your world collapses. It goes straight to your heart. Whatever your fill-in-the-blank is, when the bottom falls out, when it collapses, the problem um, is not the circumstances of your life, it's the definition of your life. Do you understand? So what then was Paul's definition of his life? Paul's, um, Paul's ability to embrace either thing as a good option, whether he stays or whether he dies, is because the definition of his life is Jesus. If he stays, he has Jesus. He goes on and lives and serves him. If he dies, he goes to be with Jesus. If Paul had been wrapped up in his success as an apostle, he'd be crushed right now because he's in jail and not a very successful apostle. And that's what those who were preaching a gospel to taunt and torment him were trying to draw out of him. The reason they couldn't is because his apostleship didn't define him. Jesus defined him. Do you feel your life collapse when certain things happen? When your health fails you or your circumstances disappoint you? What are you praying for at that point? Are you praying that God would change your circumstances or change your definition of what living is? Paul's confidence, verse 20. As it is, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. Because, because Jesus had gripped Paul in such a profound way because of the gospel, because of the freedom and resurrection, the declaration of the once for all saving work of Jesus, because these things had gripped his heart and occupied his affections, Paul, even though he was in chains, was free. He was free. And it freed him up then to this second point, which is going to be a lot shorter, and that's by design. But it frees him up to see that the best is for him to stay and encourage the church. I want to look very quickly at this. Um, I don't think Paul got to this conclusion, by the way, while dictating the letter. Okay? I don't think that he was dictating his letter and thus 
like, oh, well, that makes sense. I guess I'll, I'll choose staying. I think he knew this. I think this was a case study, a case exercise. Okay? He was showing the wrestling that was going on so that the church could see how he assessed his own situation and addressed his own heart. How do you address your own heart, friends? How do you preach truth to yourself? When we talk about preach the gospel to ourselves, it's this type of heart work. It's getting in and saying, what is, why is my life rocking right now? What have I made the functional foundation of my life? That when it goes well, it goes to my head. And when it goes poorly, it sinks straight to my heart. How do I see that Jesus has freed me from this? How do you see that Jesus is better than these things? Paul was discipling the church by taking them through this exercise. He was convinced that serving his friends would bring the greatest joy to them and so is worth what it would ultimately cost him. 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So where does this love come from? Where does this type of others um, others serving love come from. We don't have time to get into the text, but if you look at John 17, 19, this is in Jesus's uh, great pastoral prayer for the church. This is what Jesus says. He says, um, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, for their sake, I will set myself apart just to see them sanctified and holy. What that means is that everything about Jesus' life, the reason that Jesus came, the reason that Jesus lived, the reason that Jesus died, everything that Jesus is doing now in heaven, everything is subservient to one goal, our perfection and our happiness. And again, the Presbyterians get really uncomfortable with that. Three-year-old wrapping paper, not Macy's Corners. What Jesus is saying is that for you and for I, he gave it all. He gave everything so that we would have everything. Christ is saying, for me, to live is you. Do you hear that? Christ is saying, for me, to live is you. Oh, now you're really uncomfortable. Christ's life is to see us happy, truly, durably happy and holy. How do we see that? To, to see Jesus on the cross, he's saying that he's willing to do anything. He's willing to do anything to have you and I with him. This is the love that God has for us. This tree is the love that God has for us. Our response then is to love as we've been loved. For me, to live is Christ. What Jesus said is lovely is therefore what I say is lovely. 
It's the answer to the why question. Because I'm loved by Christ, because he loved me fully and gave himself fully for me, I will love him fully and give myself fully for him. That's what gives my life meaning. It's both in my head and in my heart. I can rest there and not shrink from death or life because in either case, I am my beloved's and he is mine. Like I said, it's advanced Christianity. But it's not escapist Christianity, is it? It's a Christianity that has your life defined by the only thing that can define it, Jesus. Jesus.